This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Irish Impressions by G. K. Chesterton Chapter 6 The Mistake of England I met one hardy Unionist, not to say coercionist, in Ireland, in such a manner as to talk to him at some length. One quite genial and genuine Irish gentleman, who was solidly on the side of the system of British government in Ireland. This gentleman had been shot through the body by the British troops in their efforts to suppress the Easter Rebellion. The matter just missed being tragic, but since it did I cannot help feeling as it's slightly comic. He assured me with great earnestness that the rebels had been guilty of the most calculated cruelties, and that they must have done their bloody deeds in the coldest blood. But since he himself is a solid, and I am happy to say a living, demonstration, that the firing even on his own side must have been rather wild, I am inclined to give the benefit of the doubt also to the less elaborately educated marksmen. When disciplined troops destroy people so much at random, it would seem unreasonable to deny that rioters may possibly have been riotous. I hardly think he was, or even professed to be, a person of judicial impartiality, and it's entirely to his honor that he was, on principle, so much more indignant with the rioters who did not shoot him than with the other rioters who did. But I venture to introduce him here not so much as an individual as an allegory. The incident seems to me to set forth in a pointed, lucid, and picturesque form exactly what the British military government really succeeded in doing in Ireland. It succeeded in half-killing its friends, and affording an intelligent but somewhat inhumane amusement to all its enemies. The fire-eater held his firearm in so contorted a posture as to give the wandering spectator a simple impression of suicide. Let it be understood that I speak here not of tyranny thwarting Irish desires, but solely of our own stupidity in thwarting our own desires. I shall discuss elsewhere the alleged presence or absence of practical oppression in Ireland. Here I am only continuing from the last chapter my experiences of the recruiting campaign. I am concerned now, as I was concerned then, with the simple business matter of getting a big levy of soldiers from Ireland. I think it was Sir Francis Vane, one of the few really valuable public servants in the matter, I need not say he was dismissed for having been proved right, who said that the mere sight of some representative Belgian priests and nuns might have produced something like a crusade. The matter seems to have been mostly left to elder English landlords, and it would be cruel to record their adventures. It will be enough that I found, for a positive fact, that these unhappy gentlemen had displayed throughout Ireland a poster consisting only of the Union Jack and the appeal, Is not this your flag? Come and fight for it. It faintly recalls something we all learnt in the Latin grammar about questions that expect the answer no. These remarkable recruiting sergeants did not realize, I suppose, what an extraordinary thing this was, not merely in Irish opinion, but generally in international opinion. 
Over a great part of the globe it would sound like a story that the Turks had placarded Armenia with the crescent of Islam, and asked all the Christians who were not yet massacred whether they did not love the flag. I really do not believe that the Turks would be so stupid as to do it. Of course, it may be said that such an impression or association is mere slander and sedition. That is, there is no reason to be tender to such treasonable emotions at all, that men ought to do their duty to that flag, whatever is put upon that poster. In short, that it is the duty of an Irishman to be a patriotic Englishman, or whatever it is that he is expected to be. But this view, however logical and clear, can only be used logically and clearly as an argument for conscription. It is simply muddle-headed to apply it to any appeal for volunteers anywhere, in Ireland or England. The whole object of a recruiting poster, or any poster, is to be attractive. It is picked out in words or colors to be picturesquely and pointedly attractive. If it lowers you to make an attractive offer, do not make it, but do not deliberately make it, and deliberately make it repulsive. If a certain medicine is so mortally necessary and so mortally nasty that it must be forced on everybody by the policeman, call the policeman, but do not call an advertisement agent to push it like a patent medicine, solely by means of publicity and suggestion, and then confine him strictly to telling the public how nasty it is. But the British blunder in Ireland was a much deeper and more destructive thing. It can be summed up in one sentence, that whether or no we were as black as we were painted, we actually painted ourselves much blacker than we were. Bad as we were, we managed to look much worse than we were. In a horrible unconsciousness we reenacted history through sheer ignorance of history. We were foolish enough to dress up and play up to the part of a villain in a very old tragedy. We clothed ourselves almost carelessly in fire and sword, and if the fire had been literally stage fire, or the sword a wooden sword, the mere artistic blunder would have been quite as bad. For instance, I soon came on the traces of a quarrel about some silly veto in the schools against Irish children wearing green rosettes. Anybody with a streak of historical imagination would have avoided a quarrel in that particular case about that particular color. It is touching the talisman. It is naming the name. It is striking the note of another relation in which we were in the wrong, to the confusion of a new relation in which we were in the right. Anybody of common sense, considering any other case, can see the almost magic force of these material coincidences. If the English armies in France in 1914 considered themselves justified for some reason in executing some Frenchwoman, they would perhaps be indiscreet if they killed her, however logically, tied to a stake in the marketplace of Rouen. If the people of Paris rose in the most righteous revolt against the most corrupt conspiracy of some group of the wealthy French Protestants, I should strongly advise them not to fix the date for the vigil of St. Bartholomew, or to go work with white scarves tied round their arms. Many of us hoped to see a Jewish commonwealth reconstituted in Palestine, 
and we could easily imagine some quarrel in which the government of Jerusalem was impelled to punish some Greek or Latin pilgrim or monk. The Jews might even be right in the quarrel, and the Christian wrong. But it may be hinted that the Jews would be ill-advised if they actually crowned him with thorns and killed him on a hill just outside Jerusalem. Now we must know by this time, or the sooner we know it the better, that the whole mind of that European society which we have helped to save, and in which we have henceforth a part right of control, regards the Anglo-Irish story as one of these black and white stories in a history book. It sees the tragedy of Ireland as simply and clearly as the tragedy of Christ or Joan of Arc. There may have been more to be said on the coercive side than the culture of the continent understands. So there was a great deal more than is usually admitted to be said on the side of the patriotic democracy, which condemned Socrates, and a very great deal to be said on the side of the imperial aristocracy, which would have crushed Washington. But these disputes will not take Socrates from his niche among the pagan saints, or Washington from his pedestal among the republican heroes. After a certain testing time, substantial justice is always done to the men who stood in some unmistakable manner for liberty and light against contemporary caprice and fashionable force and brutality. In this intellectual sense, in the only competent intellectual courts, there is already justice to Ireland. In the wide daylight of this worldwide fact, we or our representatives must get into a quarrel with children of all people and about the color green of all things in the world. It is an exact working model of the mistake I mean. It is the more brutal because it is not strictly cruel and yet instantly revives the memories of cruelty. There need be nothing wrong with it in the abstract or in a less tragic atmosphere where the symbols were not talismans. A schoolmaster in the prosperous and enlightened town of Eatonswill might not unpardonably protest against the schoolchildren parading in class the buff and blue favours of Mr. Simkin and Mr. Slumkey. But who but a madman would not see that to say the word or make that sign in Ireland was like giving a signal for keening and the lament over lost justice that is lifted in the burden of the noblest national songs? that to point to that rag of that color was to bring back all the responsibilities and realities of that reign of terror, when we were quite literally hanging men and women too for the wearing of the green. We were not literally hanging these children. As a matter of mere utility, we should have been more sensible if we had been. But the same fact took an even more fantastic form. We not only dressed up as our ancestors, but we actually dressed up as our enemies. I need hardly state my own conviction that the pacifist trick of lumping the abuses of one side along with the abominations of the other was a shallow pedantry come of sheer ignorance of the history of Europe and the barbarians. It was quite false that the English evil was exactly the same as the German. It was quite false but the English in Ireland labored long and devotedly to prove it was quite true. They were not content with borrowing old uniforms from the Hessians of 1798. They borrowed the newest and neatest uniforms from the Prussians of 1914. 
I will give only one story that I was told, out of many, to show what I mean. There was a sort of village musical festival at a place called Cullen in County Cork, at which there were naturally national songs and very possibly national speeches. That there was a sort of social atmosphere, which its critics would call Sinn Féin, is exceedingly likely, for that now exists all over Ireland, and especially that part of Ireland. If we wish to prevent it being expressed at all, we must not only forbid all public meetings, but all private meetings, and even the meeting of husband and wife in their own house. Still, there might have been a case, on coercionist lines, for forbidding this public meeting. There might be a case, on coercionist lines, for imprisoning all the people who attended it, or a still clearer case on those lines, for imprisoning all the people in Ireland. But the coercionist authorities did not merely forbid the meeting, which would mean something. They did not arrest the people at the meeting, which would mean something. They did not blow the whole meeting to hell with big guns, which would also mean something. What they did was this. They caused a military aeroplane to jerk itself backwards and forwards in a staggering fashion just over the heads of the people, making as much noise as possible to drown the music, and dropping flare rockets and fire in various somewhat dangerous forms in the neighborhood of any men, women, and children who happened to be listening to the music. The reader will note with what exquisite art and fine fastidious selection the strategist has here contrived to look as Prussian as possible without securing any of the advantages of Prussianism. There was a certain amount of real danger to the children, but not very much. There was about as much as there generally has been when boys have been flogged for playing the fool with fireworks. But by laboriously climbing hundreds of feet into the air, in an enormous military machine. These ingenious people managed to make themselves a meteor in heaven and a spectacle to all the earth. The English raining fire on women and children, just as the Germans did. I repeat that they did not actually destroy children, though they did endanger them, for playing with fireworks is always playing with fire. And I repeat that as a mere matter of business, it would have been more sensible if they had destroyed children. They would at least have had the human meaning that has run through a hundred massacres, wolf cubs who would grow into wolves. It might at least have the execrable excuse of decreasing the number of rebels. What they did would quite certainly increase it. An artless member of Parliament, whose name I forget, attempted an apology for this half-witted performance. He interposed in the Unionist interests when the Nationalists were asking questions about the matter, and said with much heat, May I ask whether honest and loyal subjects have anything to fear from British aeroplanes? I have often wondered what he meant. It seems possible that he was in the mood of that medieval fanatic who cried, God will know his own, and that he himself would fling any sort of flaming bolts about anywhere, believing that they would always be miraculously directed toward the heads harboring at that moment the most incorrect political opinions. Or perhaps he meant that loyal subjects are so superbly loyal that they do not mind being accidentally burnt alive, 
so long as they are assured that the fire was dropped on them by government officials out of a government apparatus. But my purpose here is not to fathom such a mystery, but merely to fix the dominant fact of the whole situation, that the government copied the theatricality of Potsdam even more than the tyranny of Potsdam. In that incident, the English laboriously reproduced all the artificial accessories of the most notorious crimes of Germany, the flying men, the flame, the selection of a mixed crowd, the selection of a popular festival. They had every part of it except the point of it. It was as if the whole British army in Ireland had dressed up in spiked helmets and spectacles merely that they might look like Prussians. It was even more as if a man had walked across Ireland on three gigantic stilts, taller than the trees and visible from the most distant village, solely that he might look like one of those inhuman monsters from Mars, striding about on their iron tripods in the great nightmare of Mr. Wells. Such was our educational efficiency, that before the end multitudes of simple Irish people really had about the English invasion the same particular psychological reaction that multitudes of simple English people had about the German invasion. I mean that it seemed to come not only from outside the nation, but from outside the world. It was unearthly in the strict sense in which a comet is unearthly. It was the more appallingly alien for coming close. It was the more outlandish the farther it went inland. These Christian peasants have seen coming westward out of England what we saw coming westward out of Germany. They saw science in arms, which turns the very heavens into hells. I have purposely put these fragmentary and secondary impressions before any general survey of the Anglo-Irish policy in the war. I do so first because I think a record of the real things that seem to bulk biggest to any real observer at any real moment is often more useful than the setting forth of theories he may have made up before he saw any realities at all. But I do it in the second place because the more general summaries of our statesmanship or lack of statesmanship are so much more likely to be found elsewhere. But if we wish to comprehend the queer cross-purposes, it will be well to keep always in mind a historical fact I have mentioned already. The reality of the old Franco-Irish intent. It lingers alive in Ireland, and especially the most Irish parts of Ireland. In the fiercely Fenian city of Cork, walking around the young Ireland monument, that seems to give revolt the majesty of an institution. A man told me that German bands had been hooted and belted in those streets out of an indignant memory of 1870, and an eminent scholar in the same town, referring to the events of the same terrible year, said to me, In 1870 Ireland sympathized with France and England with Germany, and, as usual, Ireland was right. But if they were right when we were wrong, they only began to be wrong when we were right. A sort of play or parable might be written to show that this apparent paradox is a very genuine piece of human psychology. Suppose there are two partners named John and James, that James has always been urging the establishment of a branch of the business in Paris. Long ago John quarreled with this furiously as a foreign fad, but he has since forgotten all about it, for the letters from James bored him so much 
that he has not opened any of them for years. One fine day, John, finding himself in Paris, conceives the original idea of a Paris branch. But he is conscious in a confused way of having quarrelled with his partner, and vaguely feels that his partner would be an obstacle to anything. John remembers that James was always cantankerous, and forgets that he was cantankerous in favour of this project, and not against it. John therefore sends James a telegram of a brevity amounting to brutality, simply telling him to come in with no nonsense about it, and when he has no instant reply, sends a solicitor's letter to be followed by a writ. How James will take it depends very much on James. How he will hail his happy confirmation of his own early opinion will depend on whether James is an unusually patient and charitable person. And James is not. He is unfortunately the very man of all men in the world to drop his own original agreement and everything else into the black abyss of disdain, which now divides him from the man who has the impudence to agree with him. He is the very man to say he will have nothing to do with his own original notion, because it is now the belated notion of a fool. Such a character could easily be analyzed in any good novel. Such a conduct would readily be believed in any good play. It could not be believed when it happened in real life. And it did happen in real life. The Paris project was the sense of the safety of Paris as the pivot of human history. The abrupt telegram was the recruiting campaign, and the writ was conscription. As to what Irish conscription was, or rather would have been, I cannot understand any visitor in Ireland having the faintest doubt, unless, as is often the case, his tour was so carefully planned as to permit him to visit everything in Ireland except the Irish. Irish conscription was a piece of rank, raving madness, which was fortunately stopped, with other bad things, by the blow of Foch at the Second Battle of the Marne. It could not possibly produce at the last moment allies on whom we could depend, and it would have lost us the whole sympathy of the allies on whom we at that moment depended. I do not mean that American soldiers would have mutinied, though Irish soldiers might have done so. I mean something much worse. I mean that the whole mood of America would have altered, and there would have been some kind of compromise with German tyranny, in sheer disgust, at a long exhibition of English tyranny. Things would have happened in Ireland, week after week and month after month, such as the modern imagination has not seen, except where Prussia has established hell. We should have butchered women and children. They would have made us butcher them. We should have killed priests, and probably the best priests. It could not be better stated than in the words of an Irishman, as he stood with me in a high terrace garden outside Dublin, looking towards that unhappy city, who shook his head and said sadly, They will shoot the wrong bishop. Of the meaning of this huge furnace of defiance, I shall write when I write of the national idea itself. I am concerned here not for their nation, but for mine, and especially with its peril from Prussia and its help from America. And it is simply a question of considering what these real things are really like. Remember that the American Republic is practically founded on the fact or fancy that England is a tyrant. Remember that it was being ceaselessly swept with new waves of immigrant Irishry, telling tales, 
too many of them true though not all of the particular cases in which england had been a tyrant it would be hard to find a parallel to explain to englishmen the effect of awakening tradition so truly american by a prolonged display of england as the tyrant in ireland a faint approximation might be found if we imagine the survivors of victorian england steeped in the tradition of uncle tom's cabin watching the american troops march through london suppose they noted that the negro troops alone had to march in chains with a white man in a broad-brimmed hat walking beside them and flourishing a whip scenes far worse than that would have followed irish conscription but the only purpose of this chapter is to show that scenes quite as stupid marked every stage of irish recruitment for it certainly would not have reassured the traditional sympathizers with uncle tom to be told that the chains were only part of the uniform or that the blacks moved not at the touch of the whip but only at the crack of it such was our practical policy and the single and sufficient comment on it can be found in a horrible whisper which can scarcely now be stilled it is said with a dreadful plausibility that the unionists were deliberately trying to prevent a large irish recruitment which would certainly have meant reconciliation and reform in plain words it is said that they were willing to be traitors to england if they could only still be tyrants to ireland only too many facts can be made to fit in with this but for me it is still too hideous to be easily believed but whatever our motives in doing it there is simply no doubt whatever about what we did in this matter of the pro-germans in ireland we did not crush the pro-germans we did not convert them or coerce them or educate them or exterminate them or massacred them we manufactured them we turned them out patiently steadily and systematically as from a factory we made them exactly as we made munitions it needed no little social science to produce in any kind of irishman any kind of sympathy with prussia but we were equal to the task what concerns me here however is that we were busy at the same work among the irish americans and ultimately among all the americans and that would have meant as i have already noted the things that i always feared the dilution of the policy of the allies anything that looked like a prolonged prussianism in ireland would have meant a compromise that is a perpetuated prussianism in europe i know that some who agree with me in other matters disagree with me in this but i should indeed be ashamed if having to say so often where i think my country was wrong i did not say as plainly where i think she was right the notion of a compromise was founded on the coincidence of recent national wars which were only about the terms of peace not about the type of civilization but there do recur at longer historic intervals universal wars of religion not concerned with what one nation shall do but with what all nations shall be they recommence until they are finished in things like the fall of carthage or the rout of attila it is quite true that history is for the most part a plain road which the tribes of men must travel side by side bargaining at the same markets or worshipping at the same shrines fighting and making friends again and wisely making friends quickly but we need only to see the road stretch but a little farther 
from a hill but a little higher to see that sooner or later it comes always to another place where stands a winged image of victory and the ways divide the end of chapter six